Hello and welcome to the Utah Film Pod. My name is Josh Terry. I will be your host and for this episode I'm going to be flying solo. Mark LaRocca will be back as we discuss the Oscars and other things coming up in the spring. Uh, but in the meantime, I wanted to do this as kind of a bonus episode because I've got a couple of movies I need to cover, a couple of reviews I need to provide that I was planning on doing as written reviews, but we've been having some technical difficulties with the Utah.film website. And so in the interest of being timely, I wanted to get this out to you. Uh, so I've got, again, like I said, I've got two movies to cover. And the first one I'm going to start with is the, the new Dune sequel, Dune Part 2, coming out this weekend, a uh, sequel to the original film from a couple of years ago from director Denise Villeneuve, same guy who did uh, Blade Runner 2049, Arrival, Sicario, uh, some really well done movies. And of course, I think that uh, this is keeping up with that standard. Um, you know, like a lot of people my age, my association with Frank Herbert's Dune, the book, starts and generally ends with the David Lynch film from the 1980s. And, you know, I remember the blue eyes and the weird voice trick and the still suits. And, you know, I, overall, I think I kind of placed it somewhere under the Star Wars and Star Trek movies as kind of a, kind of a campy second or third rate sci-fi movie. Um, now my dad, having actually read Herbert's book, saw things a little bit differently. Um, I never quite remember whether he commented specifically on the Lynch movie, but I do remember him proudly pointing out to me that George Lucas ripped off Dune sandworms twice, uh, once in Empire Strikes Back for the asteroid field sequence, and again with the Sarlacc and Return of the Jedi. Um, so that was that was always just kind of a fun association for my childhood. Uh, but anyway, this, this checkered background and the general success rate of uh, Villeneuve's other movies, like I mentioned, you know, especially Blade Runner 2049, uh, had me really excited to see the new version of, of Dune from a couple of years ago. I was really excited to see that he was going to be doing it. And even though it had kind of a blunt part one ending, I really enjoyed the first movie um, and was excited to see what came up in this one. Um, you know, the only hiccup, of course, was that it was this movie was supposed to come out at the end of last year. And because of the, you know, the various writer strikes and things, this was kicked back to this year. Uh, but as a result, now I actually have kind of an early favorite for my favorite movie of uh, 2024. Um, we'll see if that holds. I don't know. Uh, but I think the most precise way I can sum this up is to say that if you enjoyed part one, you will enjoy Dune part two. Uh, part two picks up shortly after the events of the first film, which saw you know, our hero to be Paul Atreides and his mother narrowly escaping the extermination of their people uh, while they're out on this remote desert planet called Arrakis, which is kind of the center of the Dune universe. Uh, because of the, the valuable spice that is mined on this planet. Um, so now it's in, uh, now, now Paul and his mother are in the hands of a group of natives called the Fremen. And so part two is going to reveal whether Paul is truly the, the prophesied Messiah that is going to rise up and save or lead the Fremen and throw off the shackles of the, you know, the intergalactic emperor, uh, not the Star Wars emperor, this one is a different emperor, and he's actually played by Christopher Walken, believe it or not. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the other bad guy. The main bad guy is the, the Baron Harkonnen, who is, who is behind or, or carried out the, the murder of, of Paul's father and, and his people in the first movie. Um, as you can tell, there's, there's a lot of background and there's a lot of lore to explain here. Um, but luckily, uh, as with the best of the Star Wars movies, 
uh, Villeneuve manages to keep the story at a scope that's easy to follow. Uh, we're really pretty much focused on a couple of story threads and things don't get too complicated or too confusing. Um, we spend most of our time following uh, you know, Paul's primary story, of course, as he's spending time with the Fremen, uh, trying to prove himself and kind of rise to his potential. Um, but we also follow the Baron uh, and his two nephews as they're trying to keep Paul and the Fremen from thwarting their mining, uh, their mining efforts on Arrakis. Uh, we also follow uh, a smaller thread that uh, includes the Emperor's daughter, played by Florence Pugh, who is a new character to the series, uh, but is going to play a more important role as the story advances. And of course, she's plotting with her father to retain power uh, after the, you know, the genocide of Paul's people. Um, like I said, back on Arrakis, we're watching Paul work to prove himself to the Fremen. Um, the Fremen themselves are divided because there's the more religious ideology that is inclined to think Paul is their messiah, but then there's also a skeptical uh, part of the group um, that's distrustful of their faith and the outworld parties in general. Um, in, a, in a twist, Paul's romantic interest, uh, Shani, is one of the skeptics. So that's kind of interesting. So with all this stuff going on, you know, rather than get kind of bogged down in the story, uh, the real takeaway here is that the story is good, but this is a spectacle of a movie, and it is something that needs to be seen in a theater. This is why movie theaters are around, and this is why theaters have not been completely replaced by our our personal uh, home theaters. Uh, Hans Zimmer does an incredible job with the with the soundtrack. Cinematography is spectacular. The effects, everything. This is uh, this, this is why I say like if you enjoyed the first movie, which really did a lot of world building and kind of uh, was was a tremendous introduction to this this particular universe. Um, so part two is more of the same, and so it is it is well worth investing the time and a little bit of money to go enjoy. And so I would I would strongly recommend this one. Um, it's not a perfect movie. Uh, I would I would say that like the first one, it's very deliberately paced, which is kind of that, you know, really kind way of saying it's slow. Um, especially the first half to two thirds of the movie is, uh, you know, it's taken its time. And I think if you're enjoying it, you don't care. Um, if it's something that bothers you, if you, if you really weren't into the first one, or if you're not if you don't find yourself absorbed by this world, it's going to bother you. Um, but the good thing I could say is that the slow pace early on kind of leads to a dramatic finale that turns into this great payoff. Um, I loved the third act of this movie. It was, it was fantastic. Um, I, I don't want to overstate things, but as I was watching it, I, I noted that I was starting to get kind of a little bit of Lord of the Rings vibes. Um, not, not quite, yeah, at least in terms of the drama of the final battles, like the buildup of emotion and weight um, and, and consequences. Um, this movie has emotional weight in a way that, you know, a lot of, honestly, a lot of comic book movies lately have not shared. And so... Uh, that's something, again, that I would also recommend this movie for, is it the, the, the power of the story, the good characters, 
and all of the great, you know, narrative, visual, sound elements, like all of that, it really comes together well. And so if you can kind of put up with a little bit of slow pacing and just kind of lose yourself in this world, uh, this is a really great payoff. This is, this is a really fantastic movie. Um, other little things I could quibble about, um, some of the performances I wasn't totally crazy about because the, the dialogue delivery felt a little bit more like a 21st century person on Earth versus kind of what they try to create with a lot of the performances with other characters in this Dune universe. Uh, that seemed to be a little bit jarring, but not enough to really make me say that, oh, yes, yeah, this is not good. Um, you know, a few movies, if any, are perfect, so I guess you can always find something to poke at a little bit. Um, but, you know, the, the main takeaway, again, if you enjoyed the first one, I think you're really going to enjoy the second one. And I would absolutely recommend that, you know, anyone interested sees this in the theater uh, where it belongs. It's a really, really uh, impressive experience. Um, and of course, another thing that occurred to me as I was watching it was I was wondering what my dad would think because, you know, he was such a big, big fan of Dune. And, and I think I can say without any doubt that he would really have enjoyed these two movies. And I think he would have appreciated the, uh, the way that the source material was interpreted. Um, and I think he would be appreciative of the fact that there is enough of an open ending that if they wanted to make a third movie, uh, which I assume would cover the sequels to Herbert's books, I think that there were you know, a couple more books that he wrote afterwards, uh, that's a possibility too. So if this one does well enough, maybe we'll get more Dune movies, which is great. Um, anyway, this one's, you know, it's rated PG-13, uh, sequences of action violence. It's, it's, it's definitely a violent film. Um, it is not gory. There's not a whole lot of bloodletting. Uh, it's more implied, like, I don't know, you can kind of notice that when, uh, characters in PG-13, in, when characters in PG-13 movies use knives, you hear the, you know, the sound of the blade, but you're not seeing blood spurting, you're not seeing wounds opening, and so, so it's, it's a pretty safe PG-13 in that sense. Uh, nothing else, you know, in terms of uh, sexual content or, you know, even profanity that I remember. Uh, but just a good overall fun movie. This is, this is what I was hoping for, and uh, looking forward to seeing it again, in fact. Unfortunately... I cannot say the same about the second movie I wanted to cover, which is a little less timely because this one has been out for a couple of weeks. Uh, I don't even know if it's still going to be in the theaters for very much longer. Um, Madam Web is uh, another comic book movie, this one coming from the Sony people. It's within the Spider-Man universe, uh, but it is not uh, one of the, the Marvel canon movies. Um, this one... Yeah, I, I, I mean, I can't recommend it, obviously. Um, I think that there are some good things about it worth noting, uh, but unfortunately, a combination of kind of lackluster execution and poor timing is, I think, has already buried this one. I think I saw that already it had a really, really poor opening weekend, maybe a record-breaking low. Um, but... Uh, but it is a movie worth talking about, um, and so I'd like to, you know, 
give pass on a few thoughts anyway. Um, I mean, this this one, I did like Dune. I did have some childhood connections to this because, uh, strangely, I have I have never I've never really been a comic book collector. Um, but over the course of my youth, I did wind up picking up about a dozen or so different comic books, you know, so it never became like a passion or, or, or anything. Uh, but I did wind up just getting a few issues here and there of just kind of scattered, you know, from scattered series. I think one of them was that I, I, I got like the, the multi-issue series that covered Return of the Jedi and I think I got like the first of a similar series that was supposed to cover Temple of Doom. So more, more often than not, it was in connection to some movie. Um, but I did get some regular comics too. I think I had a, a Batman one where he's fighting Ra's al Ghul. And, uh, and then, you know, to kind of make the connection here, I did have one Spider-Man comic. And it happened to be the one where he meets Madam Web. Uh, and so when I saw that Madam Web was going to come out as a, as a movie... I thought, well, you know, that's interesting because for once I'm actually kind of familiar with the character, although it turns out I'm not super familiar with the character because uh, I just kind of assumed that Madame Webb was a, was a bad guy and was a villain. Um, not quite the case. I guess it's kind of ambiguous. Again, this is my lack of background as a, you know, comic book authority. Um, but, uh, but I do have the, the Madame Webb origin story issue. And uh, this is kind of the, well, I guess a pre-origin because the, the, the issue that I had uh, has Madam Web in kind of more advanced age, um, whereas this is really just kind of a straight-up origin story starring Dakota Johnson. Um, so I don't remember a whole lot about that comic. Um, I think I've probably only read it a couple of times. And sadly... I think that like six from six months from now, any of the details from the new movie are going to be just as lost as my memory of the comic. Um, so Madam Web, you know, is, is a well-intended, but it's a, it's a lackluster attempt to mine another, you know, kind of B or C list comic book character for the big screen. Uh, the core idea is kind of interesting. Um, but the film's directed by SJ Clarkson it's, it's really just undone by some bad writing and some really, pub, uh, some really puzzling, puzzling performances. Uh, it's, it's, again, like I say, it's an origin story about a woman with strange powers of premonition who recruits a team of female super underlings for future adventures, if that makes sense. Uh, she basically just takes these, this group of teenagers under her wing and uh, we're, we're told repeatedly that, you know, kind of through flash forwards, that they're going to become this this crack squad of, you know, superheroes of, of some, uh, of some level. Uh, of course, you know, Madam Webb is Cassandra Webb, uh, again, played by Dakota Johnson, who is the orphan daughter of this scientist who died in childbirth when, uh, she was shot, uh, because this, this competing party was trying to steal an exotic spider specimen. And of course, spider bites her mom, and that's where the powers come from, right? Uh, so fast forward 30 years, and Cassandra is this detached EMT who is beginning to have strange experiences that feel like deja vu, like a really, really intense version of deja vu. Um, and so one random day, a mysterious wall-crawling assailant who is not Spider-Man 
um, attacks her and this, like I say, this group of, of teenage girls on a subway. And then Cassandra manages to, you know, somehow get the girls away from this guy. They get to safety and then they form a bond as they kind of realize their common objective. So this is kind of what's going to bring them together for presumably for future adventures. Um, so on paper, you know, Madam Web offers kind of a reasonable pitch for another franchise of adventures. And it really worked hard to tie itself into kind of the Spider-Man world without actually mentioning Spider-Man. Um, I don't, I don't know if it's a legal thing or if they're trying to be clever or, or what, or if they're trying to create some level of suspense, even though like everybody knows what's going on. Uh, but the problem is in execution, the film really fails to spin any kind of a promising narrative, uh, narrative web pun intended. Um, you know, there's, there's bad dialogue, there's convenient plot contrivances that are always a distraction. And the thing that really kind of jumped out at me that was strange was uh, Dakota Johnson's acting, which just feels really indifferent. Uh, it seems like she's always in these intense situations, but then her acting and performance just seems, like I say, just kind of indifferent, kind of neutral. Like she's not grasping what's, what's going on. Uh, the most uh, egregious example early on is, you know, when we first meet her, she's driving this, this ambulance in an emergency, you know, because she's an EMT. And she's, you know, speeding through traffic and cutting off and do it, you know, doing all these kind of moves and just having this casual conversation that just, you know, I don't know if it was meant to kind of portray her as a cool customer, right? She's really good at her job, but it just seems odd. And there are other places later on in the film where it just, it doesn't feel like the intensity of the acting matches the intensity of the scene. And so this, there's this bizarre juxtaposition that doesn't work. Um, you know, and it also doesn't help that, like, as an origin story, we get hints and flash-forwards about what the teen girls are supposed to become, but then we don't get any of the excitement of, you know, watching them in the present. We get an idea of, okay, this is what they're going to do in the future, but for now, things are kind of dull, and, and they're really just kind of like these, these terrified young women uh, who, you know, a little a little punkish, right? I think I think that they're being portrayed that way to suggest that, oh, well, they're you know, this is, this is the, the spunk that is going to eventually lead them to greatness, but I don't know. It, it doesn't, it's not fun. And it, you, you don't, I don't, I didn't find myself really kind of connecting with the characters. Um, and then, so, you know, unfortunately there's the sense that this movie is all set up and there's really no payoff. And because it's banking on the idea that, well, this is going to set up the, the stories to come, based on the box office and all that, we're never really going to get any follow-through on what we're being promised. Um, I don't know if, if any of this stuff will still follow through. Um, you know, Sony's efforts have been pretty checkered in, in the Spider-Man realm. I haven't been a big fan of the Venom movies. The first one was pretty good. The second one I thought was just awful. Um, and so, you know, because it has this bizarre, you know, property connection with, with Spider-Man that kind of shares with Marvel, um, I really don't know how this stuff is going to work. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, think, I think one of the biggest problems as well is just the timing. Um, pretty much has been the case with all the post-COVID superhero movies. Uh, this is just, 
this is just bad timing. I think I think if this movie had come out five years ago, it probably would have sque squeaked by as kind of a mid to low tier comic book flick. Um, but you know, when you've already got other superhero movies like the Marvels setting records for low box office receipts, you know, this one just it just kind of seems DOA. You know, it's it's not gonna not gonna change that trend. And and like I said, I mean, this one's been out for a couple of weeks, and it already seems to have kind of lived up to its or lived down to its promise. Um, and I would, I would say, you know, it's not that it is a, that this is not the, the worst comic book movie of all time, not even close. Um, I think there are far, far worse examples out there. This is just kind of a, it's a middling effort that, that doesn't really distinguish itself and doesn't have enough to get attention during a period of time when superhero movies really are going to have to go out of their way to get positive attention. And so this is probably the first and last we're going to hear of Madam Web. Um, so I mean, for, for the record, it's rated PG-13. It's got, you know, kind of your usual comic book movie action violence and some profanity and stuff. Uh, nothing super objectionable, um, but unfortunately, nothing too memorable either. So thanks for joining in on this bonus episode of the Utah Film Pod. Hope you've enjoyed the reviews. My name is Josh Terry. Uh, if you haven't already, please take the time to follow us on whatever platform you're on and give us some feedback. Reach out and uh, be good to hear from you. Hope things are going well on your end and we'll look forward to talking about some more movie stuff soon.